This is Anna, producer at Secure Sessions. We wanted to tell you about our exclusive sponsor and top-tier VPN provider. IPVanish has been a great resource for all of our digital security needs. Now our listeners will have access to great benefits including lightning fast speeds, a secure no-logging policy, easy-to-use apps for all major devices, and much more. Go to IPVanish.com and enter promo code SESSIONS to receive 20% off any plan. Joining us today, we have esteemed reporter Matt Hughes of Make Use Of, who covers everything from tech, from digital security to gaming. Thanks very much for speaking with us today, Matt. No worries. Glad to be here. So, big news at your end of the pond today. We've got the Brexit referendum pending, which of course is going to have all sorts of implications. Most folks have focused on the economic ones and the political ones, uh, but it seems clear that this will affect uh, internet governance and the security apparatus in some ways as well that's not really being discussed. Uh, so tell me, what what's the mood over there, and, and what are people thinking about? Um, so that's a very interesting multifaceted question. I think uh, the country is, is incredibly split into two camps, with, with one side being vehemently in favor of leaving, and, and the other vehemently in favor of maintaining the status quo. Now, the EU is... Uh, an old organization that started off as the uh, European Economic Community in the 70s. So we have, uh, and, and it's a single market where companies can, well, well where anyone can uh, sell goods and services uh, without any tariffs and, and under kind of like a common framework of legislation. Now, over the past 40 years, there's been a lot of legislation built around self-services and especially digital services um, and all 28 European countries work under the same legislation. Now when we leave, all that legislation is going to have to be rewritten or ditched or, or figured out. So I, I think it's going to be an incredibly challenging uh, time the tech uh, industry in the UK. Um, I think it's going to be uh, disastrous for the startup scene because one of the advantages of the EU is that you can bring in talent from overseas without a visa. You, know, you can bring in uh, a, a German or, or a Swede or a Slovak into the UK um, without having to arrange a visa. They just show up. Um, and that's been incredibly attractive for the growing fintech scene in London, especially. And without that, I imagine a lot of companies will start to leave either to the US or to, to Hong Kong or to Berlin. So it, it's interesting times. So as an American company with, with operations uh, geographically that are geographically diverse, it absolutely poses a paperwork nightmare for us. It, it does the worst possible thing for economic growth, which is to throw everyone into uncertainty about what the operating environment will be. Because, because of course, I think as we've seen in the States numerous times, anytime there's loud uncertainty in the political scene, businesses always respond the same way, by stopping hiring until they know what's going on. When, in fact, hiring is the thing that really ultimately drives uh, you know, optimism and economic growth. Uh, it's been interesting to see Brexit also framed as a London versus the rest of the country issue which uh, I, I don't think that I don't think that most folks outside the UK uh, understand how much uh, the uh, how much the political scene can feel sort of like that of New York State here where you've got an entire state dominated by New York City 
uh, where uh, particularly you see you see Wales, Cornwall, um, you know, lots of folks in northeastern England, uh, sorry, lots of folks in the northeastern UK concerned about uh, what effects this would have on the rest of the country that has largely been supported by the EU. Yeah, um, so in, in many respects, the UK is, is, is absolutely like New York's state in the respect that it's dominated by a single large city and then you've got the outside parts which are typically neglected they don't have the same opportunities they don't have the same potential for growth um and and places like cornwall scotland wales northern ireland especially get a huge amount of eu funding and if the uk leaves the eu uh it's almost certain that scotland will have a second referendum on independence and then Wales might do the same, and, and, and Northern Ireland might unite with the South. So it, it, it brings the, the, the whole country into, into uncertainty. Um, so we've got another massive hack in the news, with Tumblr being the latest to have millions of accounts compromised and being sold on sketchy websites. Uh, this, of course, leads all of us to uh, see again to the... Uh, nervous security of our little pouch of passwords and safety questions. Uh, give me a sense of, uh, particularly as someone who writes publicly about security, uh, as much as we never discuss security measures publicly, you know, what do you do, uh, what do, you do personally to, to, avoid, uh, to avoid being hacked? It's a really great question. Um, so I think going back to Tumblr, when you give your private data to another service, it's it's you no longer have any any capacity to protect it from being leaked, and it's just it's the fact when you when you entrust the data to another entity, you you know uh, the, the onus is on them to be doing everything right. Um, personally, I, I use a VPN when I travel. Um, I, uh, I I encrypt my laptop. My phone's encrypted. Until recently, I had a BlackBerry. So uh, I, I, and uh, BlackBerry Protect is like a really great way to remotely wipe your phone if it ever gets lost. Um, so uh, there, there, are, there are a few things, but with respect to Tumblr, um, it was just that that was just a massive exclamation point on the idea that if you uh, if you entrust your private information to another service, it's completely on them to not screw up. And one of the things we've tried to emphasize here on Secure Sessions is the fact that a lot of security countermeasures are actually quite boring. A lot of it is, uh, as you've recommended, checking periodically to see what the status of your accounts is, whether it's with credit agencies or with uh, any of these registries that have uh, harvested all of the email addresses from various breaches and allow you to search them. Uh, so Have I Been Pwned is a great resource. Um, and, uh, of course, as the designated tech guy in the office, uh, I had a parade of people outside my door when Ashley Madison leaked saying, hey, hey, dude, my name's not in there, is it? Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's nice to see that we've actually got some white hat folks um, working to just, just give people tools. But how do, you decide, how do you decide which of those tools are trusted in this little mirror world of... Uh, of breach data and sites that claim to help, but maybe they aren't. We've certainly seen that in the antivirus software space, for instance, there are a number of antivirus companies that are 
that are quite sketchy themselves and seem to spend most of their time doing battle with other sketchy antivirus companies. Uh, how do you figure out which sites you can trust uh, to check whether you've had a problem? So I, I, I think I've never really encountered a, a you know, there's, there's, there's rogue anti-malware. I've never really encountered a, a rogue, have I been pwned? Um, it's just it's too niche. So I've never encountered that. But um, on, honestly, if, if, if you're interested about a tool, search for it. Ask a, ask, a, ask a knowledgeable friend. I mean, Have I Been Pwned is created by an Australian guy called Troy Hunt, who has an incredible reputation in, in, in the uh, information security industry. And he's known as someone who um, is a very straightforward kind of guy. He's, very, you know, he, he, he's a decent bloke and he knows his stuff. So honestly, it's, it's basic research. That's right. Bruce, Bruce Schneier, Brian Krebs, a few names that have uh, shown themselves to be on the right side of things, repeatedly. Yeah, and uh, and, and and paid a, a a bit of a price for it. I know uh, Brian uh, Brian Krebs has uh, had to put up with a lot of shit. With, yeah. Uh, yeah, that guy is absolutely between. He's been doxxed and swatted. I don't know how many times at this point. And yes, and having narcotics shipped to your house is always a uh, always a bit of a wake up call. And at what point would you just throw in the towel? I mean, it, it takes a kind of guy to think, yeah, this is this is ruining my life, but I'm going to stick with it. That's right. As it, it, yes, I think from watching the Batman movies, we all know what happens when you hold yourself out there as uh, the single person against the torrent of organized crime. Absolutely, yeah. Oh, hats off to him. Absolutely. So we're about to enter a bit of a brave new world um, with... Uh, just the number of devices proliferating. I know experimenting with my own homeland, I see that uh, at this point, fully 20% of the traffic on the network at my house is simply devices talking to other devices or mostly devices talking to the outside world uh, to go get data that I might want. But, uh, you know, not, this, is not, this is not an Apple TV saying, you know, get the next video chunk for what I'm watching. This is the Apple TV saying, let me go get a preview that you might want to see. Uh, so so what, do you think, what do you think it will look like, uh, you know, six months, a year out, uh, once Internet of Things gets rolling, uh, as we, what's the round of new breaches that we're likely to see? Over the past few years, there have been a few high-profile security incidents involving Internet of Things products. Um, so there was the iCastle, which uh, basically made it possible for an attacker to um, spoof network connection uh, and, and uh, somehow uh, interface with the iCastle, um, which is like a, a Wi-Fi-enabled kettle. No, I don't know why either. Um, and, and obtain cached network credentials. Um, and I've been a few of the ones uh, where um, the Samsung fridge uh, was was transporting Google Mail credentials in plain text. And I think what's going to happen is there. Are, I, I, I just just it's a pure numbers game. As more and more devices hit the market, there are going to be more and more security issues. I think what's going to remedy them is there's going to be a better framework for updating these products. And there's also going to be a standardization of the products. Uh, and there's going to be 
you know, uh, Internet of Things security is going to be taught in universities. It's going to be a slow progress, but people are eventually going to start figuring out that there are some unique security considerations that have to be made when it comes to developing IoT devices. I think this makes sense. I think we'll see... Right, we've got to. We've all got to work to produce these sorts of checklists of best practices. I think a bunch of the problems with IoT come from the fact that we're really seeing worlds collide. You're seeing folks that have historically been very good at making refrigerators suddenly trying to figure out the internet. And if we look at the, if we look at the automotive industry as an example, when required to produce tire pressure monitoring systems, which fundamentally require wireless networking because it's tough to get. Uh, it's tough to get sensors um, onto something that spins like a tire. So as a result, the car companies made little wireless networks on their cars. And then, as the wiring harness for the car got more complicated, they put more and more things on that network, never having secured it, the result of this being that in many cases, anyone close enough to an automobile was able to take over the network. Now suddenly they've got to learn about authentication and all these computer science-y things that have never been a problem before. They've mainly been concerned about electricity and combustion and you know and structural engineering. So I think those of us in the industry really need to boil it down and, and uh, make, it, make it easy for these folks to to vet their products. So one place that's not short of uh, guidelines and documentation, of course, is the payments industry. So uh, how long ago was it that chip and pin became ubiquitous in the EU? Just uh, as, a, as a user, when did you get your first chip and pin card? Um, oh, God. So I can only speak about the UK, uh, but I got my first chip and pin card and um god i think it was about 2005 probably around 2005 there's a big switch over but it's important to stress that the payments across the across the european union they're not as standardized as you might think and, and there are regional differences so a great example of this would be in the benelux countries where nowhere except uh the magnetic strip cards that are prevalent in the United States and in, in, in uh, the Americas in general. Um, if you show up to Belgium or the Netherlands with just a, a swipe card, you're going to really struggle to get money out, to buy things. Um, so it, it varies from region to region, but we've I've had chip and pin since about 2005. So by way of comparison, in the, in the States where we tolerate monopolies, uh, you know, where we've got a much stronger stranglehold on the payments network system with MasterCard and Visa. Um, so it, it's only in 2015 and really 2016 where we're starting to see chip and pin cards and chip and pin readers rolled out at merchants at all. In fact, the, the usual experience in an American merchant right now is that uh, there is a chip and pin slot and a little sign that says, don't use it because we're not ready yet. So um, my fiance is uh, is from New Jersey, and I uh, uh, she's she's moving to the UK for for her masters in a few months. But I, you know, we're, we're kind of doing the long distance stuff, and I go over to the US about two or three times a year. And whenever I go, I always bring cash, and it's because whenever I try to buy something or take cash out with my chip and pin card, my bank sees that the pin isn't the chip isn't being used, and they just assume that it's been cloned. 
Like it just it doesn't work at all. Um, so yeah, the, the 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 slow adoption of of chip and pin in the US is is incredibly inconvenient, and it's it, it makes it very difficult as a European with a with a European bank card to actually use it in the states. I should point out that no one here has chip and pin cards. They still haven't rolled out the pins because that will cost money. What they've done is rolled out chip and signature, so that. Uh, in many cases, uh, in many cases, there are chip readers now, but there's still no PIN required. And in fact, most American consumers have not been issued a PIN for their chip and PIN-enabled card. Thus, they are still unable to use them when traveling to Europe. Uh, it's actually still a bit of a, a hurdle to clear to actually get the PIN issued and enabled. So... We, exactly. So we all downshift to cash. Now, it, it would be nice if we could say, I can just access my Bitcoin wallet everywhere, but uh, that, doesn't seem to be, that doesn't seem to be a merchant-slash-point-of-sale solution no. either yet. No, that's, um, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical about Bitcoin anyways uh, as a currency. It's, um, it's too volatile. I personally have been optimistic because... W- I see it's I see a bunch of the volatility as driven by uh, driven by investment bank speculator types that will at some point ease. I do see that it seems like its price generally seems to converge back to the cost of the electricity to mine the coins. Um, so there's there is some underlying value there that or not underlying value unlie, underlying theory of value that has provided some stability. But of course, we've seen wild fluctuations outside that, and it's been vulnerable to the news cycle every time there is a, uh, a breach of a major Bitcoin vendor. Yeah. And uh, I, I think uh, you, you touched on something quite interesting with our in respects. Um, every time there's, a, there's a, an incident, or any time that there's, there's some high-profile volatility, or, or if anything happens, it further undermines the trust that ordinary consumers who, for the most part, are quite risk averse, um, you know, might have in Bitcoin. So I don't think that that will be the key to personal security for anyone's assets anytime soon. Um, now, as someone, uh, as someone with a fiance elsewhere, I got to assume you've uh, been traveling across the pond a bit. Uh, give me a sense of how the connection landscape is changing there. Uh, you've written about. Uh, you've written about the decision making for uh, whether or not to try and use the Wi-Fi and and how to pass the time on those flights. Yeah, so I I fly to the US quite regularly, and I also fly within Europe quite a bit. Um, and it's interesting to see that in the US, in-flight Wi-Fi is pretty much ubiquitous. Like all the main airlines, United, Delta, JetBlue, American, they have. Wi-Fi in, in in most, if not all, of our fleets, um, and it's a completely different story in within Europe. Um, here, uh, into Europe, travel is dominated by a handful of airlines: uh, Ryanair, EasyJet, Vueling, and Wizzar. None of which offer in-flight Wi-Fi within their fleets. There's only one airline that I can think of off the top of my head that offers it, and that's Norwegian. Um, and, and they offer uh, mostly transatlantic flights, but also a few within Europe, especially um, towards the towards the Mediterranean, where all the tourist, where all the, uh, the the resorts are. Um, I'm pretty skeptical about in-flight Wi-Fi. Um, every time I've used it, it's been kind of slow, not that great, pretty limited. Um, 
And I, I think it fundamentally alters the flight experience. I kind of like being disconnected for for a few hours. I like reading a book or watching uh binge watching the West Wing. Uh yeah. So I'm pretty skeptical of it. Yeah, we've we definitely see that some of our uh some of our IP vanish customers do use VPN to uh to subvert some of the blocks on on in flight Wi Fi. But as something that fundamentally is subject to the whims of satellite and uh, terrestrial cellular coverage. Well, I think they mostly have their own antennas on cellular towers. Regardless, I've definitely noticed that uh, the in-flight Wi-Fi works much better over population sensors, centers. And once you get to West Texas, it, uh, it, it really cuts out for a while. Um, thus, yeah, maybe making it not quite the digital pacifier that the airlines had hoped it would be. Uh, I think I think the thought was that you know much like much like the parents handing their iPad to their three year old in the restaurant, it's a way to get through the restaurant experience with a three year old, and you know the iPad will be captivating. But instead, they're just creating a metal tube full of people trying to debug the Wi-Fi. I can't tell you the number of times I have been trying to make in-flight Wi-Fi work, looked up, and seen that all three people next to me are trying to get the in-flight Wi-Fi to work, and we've all become these sort of button pushing rats trying to trying to get our trying to get our fix um well I, I think even beyond that i mean unless you're flying um across the continent uh in the united states realistically you're only going to be in the air for about two maybe three hours you know um so do you really need to be online can't you just have three hours where you just read a book or you know just chill out listen to some music do we have to be online for those three hours? Well, here's an area where my nine to five and five to nine opinions differ. Nine to five, as someone who makes his salary from the internet, I of course believe that everyone should be connected at all times, at the highest possible bandwidth, and of course using VPN while they do it. But from five o'clock till nine in the morning, I, uh, like everyone else, I mourn the loss of deep attention. And yes, I, I enjoy the fact that on a six hour transatlantic flight, uh, I can uh, work through something difficult without the normal interruptions that uh, that would follow me around. Um, so yes, it is it is a little sad to see the decline of that time, uh, but uh, we can all we can all choose to spend it as best we want. Well, we very much enjoyed having you on Secure Sessions, Matt. Uh, thanks very much for the insight and for um, you know just helping bridge the gap between tech and user experience. No worries, my pleasure. You can listen to Secure Sessions on iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, and of course at ipvanish.com slash podcasts. This is Josh Galliardi with IP Vanish. Thanks for joining us 